episode number 55, Mara Gottler. Welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theater designers, their history, and their craft. And I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz. And this time I have an interview with costume designer Mara Gottler. This is the next in my series of interviews done in Vancouver in December of 2019. Mara invited me to her home to have a discussion about her time at Stratford in the late 1970s that launched a career that brought her across the country and back again. She is currently an instructor at Langara College with the Studio 58 crew in Vancouver, and she is one of the founders of Bard on the Beach, while designing close to 60 productions on that stage in Vancouver. Her work in the past 10 years has included several wonderful productions with Robert Lepage, including Coriolanus back at the Stratford Festival, where she got her start. Now, I first want to acknowledge the passing of another of our greats. It is with great sadness that I announce in this program the loss of designer Martha Mann on May 27, 2019, at the age of 81 years. I spoke to Martha about her tremendous career in theater, opera, TV, and film in the summer of 2016, and I was amazed at by both the depth of her knowledge and experience and her absolute love of theater and design. Martha will be mourned by many, and she will be missed. Remember to check out the show notes at thetitleblock.com. And if you like the show, please go to patreon.com slash thetitleblockpodcast and help support these efforts. Now, here's my conversation with Mara Gottler. Since the late 1970s, uh, Mara Gottler has worked in theater in Canada in several different uh, capacities. Um, most of her work has been in the area of costume design, and she's now located in Vancouver, where she works as a costume designer um, across the country. Uh, Mara Gottler, welcome to the Title Lock. Thank you so much, Michael. Excellent. Now, before we go on, just pronounce your first name for me. It's pronounced Mara. Okay, perfect. A little roll to the R. Okay, something I can't do under pressure. So no problem. <laughs> All right. Now, um, you were not born in Canada. Nope. Tell me about your journey um, being born in Croatia and how you ended up in Canada and, and that journey. Because I think it's really interesting. It informs your, your life, right? Okay. I was born in Croatia. Um, my father, however, even though he was born in, in Yugoslavia, was actually... Uh, of a German family, and so the German army conscripted him. So he worked for the he worked in the German army, and then he returned to Yugoslavia after the war was over. Uh, the socialist system that was there required that everybody share their income, and also, unfortunately, do different jobs than they were used to, and that's what was so brutal. So economically, it was really, really hard for my father to subsist with a wife and two children at that point. And he just said to my mother out of the blue one day, do you want to leave? And she said, absolutely. So he used his influences and we went back through Germany and we stayed in a displacement camp for two years. Uh, We learned to speak German after having spoken Yugoslavian. And then he waited basically for the first country to say yes to him. He had applied to Canada, he had applied to America, and he had applied to Australia. And Canada said yes. So in 1956, we moved here. 
a couple of months before I started school, actually in grade one. Uh, we went eventually to Ontario. He landed in Quebec City, and we took a train all the way through Montreal and then to Windsor, Ontario. And then he was offered a job there, and he stayed there. My mother also was offered work once. She always carried around her sewing machine. Mm-hmm. She was actually a tailor trained in Europe, and whenever they saw that, they'd say, oh, do you, do you sew? Do you do alterations? So between the two of them, my father was a cabinet maker, but he became a carpenter when he first came here. Nice. Many trades. So that's how I ended up in Canada. That's great. That's a great story. Uh, and so, and I understand also that you didn't start, uh, when you, um, as you grew up, you didn't start in theater very soon, like very young. Um, how did you, um, uh, I understand your mother as a tailor sort of exposed you to this, this idea of uh, sewing and fabric and everything else. So how did you find your way to theater um, just sort of trace that story for me. That was a longer journey. Yeah. Education was really important for my father. In Europe, uh, education sometimes only went to grade four, which meant you were basically 12 or 13 because you started a bit later mm-hmm. in the Slavic countries. Uh, but he was deprived of it because his father died when he was 10. And he had to raise his family at that age. So he, he was trained as a cabinet maker from the time he was a very, very young person. And he always wanted to have more of an education, and he never really got that opportunity, so he was going to make sure that his two children did. So I was going to be the first person that got a doctoral degree in our family. (laughs) So I went to university, uh, University of Windsor. I took an undergraduate degree in English and French, double honors. Then I got a master's degree in English language and literature with French and psychology as my minors. And I keep saying I was made for theater because I took abnormal psychology at that time. (laughs) So I was prepared. Uh, And then I went on to do a doctoral degree in English literature at Western. And after five years of it, I just couldn't stand it anymore. It was just too brutal, psychologically too brutal. Uh, all the exams, the papers, everything, and I just needed a break. It had been too long. So I had volunteered to work on a theater production to do something physical with myself and to distract myself and to meet new people. And the woman that hired me was doing a Beckett Festival. So I just did everything for her backstage. And I just thought this was the looniest, most interesting bunch of people I'd ever run into. And I quite loved it. And I also found that my research abilities were quite respected when it came down to what do we do with this costume, blah, blah, blah. And I could give them some historical background. So it was interesting to see something theoretical be able to be applied to something practical. And I loved it so much that in 1978, I decided to take a year's leave of absence. And two weeks after that, I applied for a job at the Stratford Festival to be a sewer in the uh, costume shop there in the wardrobe. Peter Roberts hired me. I always remember that. He was quietly in the background. I didn't even know who he was at the time because he didn't say anything. Um, but I was hired then immediately. And they said to me, how much do you know about sewing? And I said, well, a lot. Um, I don't know your technical terms in Canada, but my mother was a European tailor and she taught me how to sew. And all of a sudden the room went quiet and they all looked at each other. And I thought, okay, I don't, I'm done. I don't have a chance. And they immediately offered me the job. And I only realized later in working there that it was a community of people from all over Europe who had these phenomenal skills working in the costume shop. So it was really exciting to learn from all of them. And the cutter they gave me to was Pat Scott. 
Pat Scott was in a lovely, amazing, talented cutter. She was also the wife of Tom Patterson, who was the founder of the Stratford Festival. Now, as I said to you earlier, serendipity is a huge part of my life, huge. A lot of the stuff that happens to me, I think, is just slotted in this funny little path pathway. So she introduced me to everyone. If there were parties going on, she would have me go to them. It was like an open door. Everyone was invited. Um, I needed to make a lot of money because I was quite quite um, poor at that time and having to pay back for all of my education. And so I offered to work overtime if they would let me. And they said, sure, you can do two to three hours a night. That's fine. So I'd work for different cutters. I'd learn different techniques. And then I noticed that a lot of the designers, the costume designers, would show up after hours when it was quiet in the shops. Desmond was there, Desmond Healy, and he'd be working on hats and trim. Uh, Brian Jackson was there. Um, I didn't see so much of Susan at that time, but they would talk to me. And so I would learn a lot about what was going on. Um, It was just so wonderful to see the different techniques that were used there to look at the different periods and how they were interpreted. So off and on, I ended up working as a sewer there for about a decade. So that's really interesting. I was just going to unpack some of that. So one of the things I didn't realize was, because we haven't talked about this a lot on the show, when I've talked to designers, we've talked about sort of the pedigree of which designer they worked with at Stratford and who do they apprentice under, but not really talking about the actual, the actual staff and the cutters and the sewers and the carpenters and everything, and the prop builders at Stratford. I didn't realize there was such an international um, collection of people in the wardrobe department. Is this, is this something that had 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 come out of the founding of Stratford and the sort of English tradition that was brought over here, and so we brought people in? Or Huge British contingency that came over with um, Tyrone Guthrie mm-hmm. and Tanya Mazevich, but also a lot of European folks who settled in that area were hired to work on shows. Uh, and a lot of European women had sewing skills. So they were still there when I came back recently, too. It was really wonderful to see them still there. Um, they were natural sewers, and then they learned to adapt to a theatrical style as well. That's fantastic. And then um, tell me again who hired you, uh, um, Roberts? Peter Roberts. Peter Roberts. I don't know this name, Peter, so tell me who Peter Roberts is. I think there are two brothers, Ted Roberts and Dave Roberts, are okay. related to him, but Peter was a production manager there at the time. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. That's great. Um, and how long was he there for, do you know? Like, I'm not really sure. Okay. That's okay. I'll try to do some research. Part of the problem pre-1996 mm-hmm. is that a lot of this information is not available <laughs> So it will. Uh, I'll, I'll direct people to the show notes. I will do some research to see if I can find out if there's any other information uh, on on Peter. But that's that's a great um, like historical nugget for us to to, to understand as well. So, uh, how long were you at Stratford then for as uh, working in the workshop sewing? Yeah. The first year was a solid year, and then Pat Scott said, "If you're interested in theater and you want to go on, you should probably get some more training." Mm-hmm. And I thought. What as? And she said, well, what about design work? Um, because I think she was aware of the fact that I had the historical ability, the research skills. I already had that there, and I had the sewing skills. I just hadn't put it all together yet. So she said, why don't you apply to a theater school? And I had seen an ad for the National Theater School. Serendipity again. So I looked at it and thought, well, that's exciting. It's Montreal. I speak some French. I wonder. And my theory is, as I always tell my students here too, go for it apply it's either yes or no 
So I did. And it was, yes, there were 400 students, 400 individuals who had applied that year to be in the design program. Uh, and they only took 10 because they're very, very small classes. Even to this day, they're very, very small classes. So we took a series of tests, written tests, oral tests. We had to do a maquette stage design. Mm -hmm. And then I found out that I had been accepted. And Francois Barbeau was the head of the design department at that point. Um, That's great, because I I didn't get a chance to talk to Francois. And I know uh, a number of people, uh, when I started this in 2014, a number of people said, we have to talk to Francois Barbeau. And I didn't get the chance to do that. So what... What are your kind of, um, did you have a chance to work with them outside of the theater school? Uh, or was it just your connection to them at, at uh, NTS? I did briefly, because after I left the National Theater School, I worked at the Sadie Bronfman Center, and he designed a show there, uh, L'Impromptu du Tremont. And so I got to work with them again there, coincidentally. But my design assistant in Quebec, right now at Théâtre de Nouveau Monde, worked with Robert for over five years. So we were sharing all kinds of stories about him. He was an amazing designer, uh, a very strong and unusual man, and a very harsh but funny individual as well. So my my biggest story for Robert is that the only thing that we were not... Sorry, Robert or Francois? Francois, sorry. Francois, sorry, sorry. Sorry. It's okay. sorry. It's okay. <laughs> That's fine. No problems. Um, the only class you were not allowed to skip was his life drawing class, and it was Saturday mornings for three hours. So there's a huge, huge circle in the room around the, the, uh, uh, the model. Thank you. And at one point in my work there, I had broken my hand in doing working on carpentry. It had ricocheted into the what do you call that? The security, the fence, the safety guard. Yeah. yeah, it had ricocheted into that and it had broken. So I had a cast on my hand, and it was my drawing hand. It was my work hand. So I had to draw with the other hand. Mm-hmm. I was not going to miss that one class. Mm-hmm. So I'm drawing away, drawing away. And he he used to walk behind you, and he'd make a comment over your shoulder, and he looked over at my work and he went. Hmm. He didn't say anything else. <laughs> Went around the circle one more time. And then he came over again and he said, could you arrange to keep your hand broken all year? <laughs> I said, so that's a compliment? <laughs> that's fantastic. That was the way he taught. <laughs> oh my God. That's great. We, I didn't do life trying at Ryerson. We, it wasn't part of our, it was a more technical mm. program, right? It wasn't a, it was an artistic program. And it's, I, I just also want to comment as well. It's funny uh, I had never made this connection before, but you're you're absolutely right about this, the capacity and the necessity uh, for to be a good researcher in design. And I and I know this is an obvious thing. Like I did a lot of research when I was doing design as well, but we never had any kind of formal training, uh, at least at Ryerson. I know at uh, York they would do these projects, um, these kind of uh, uh, th- like uh, period or theme kind of collages. I don't mm-hmm. know what they're called, but um, we talked about with Dana Osborne on the on two... Um, uh, on on her interview, um, but uh, and that was more of a like a cultural awareness kind of project where you would like go through um, fashion magazines and mod and and um, and contemporary uh, uh, cultural magazines and materials to sort of collect a uh, some sort of statement like a design statement. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not really. I mean, that's not how you do research in necessarily in. The social sciences or in, uh, you know... It it can be. I mean, the whole thing with Google right now makes it far too easy to be able to research images. 
And as I keep telling my students, you have to go beyond that. You have to find out whether the image is even valid or accurate. Sometimes they're incorrect. Uh, you also have to go further than page six, as I keep telling them in assignments. I'd go to page eight and ten to see how far you've gone. <laughs> so uh, we have a lot of great tools at our disposal right now, but we need to go deeper. Uh, and that takes a lot of time. And that's the hard part. Like if you're doing a lot of design work, I suppose the thing about experience is that after a while you keep accumulating with every show. And so you have more and more information about some periods. Yeah. Uh, and I will say that it's also not unusual. I mean, behind, as we sit here and talk behind you is a, a whole wall of like, like source material that you use to draw from. And I know I collected as a lighting designer, I collected different things that spoke to my own my own kind of uh, aesthetic, mm -hmm. uh, but um, it's, I mean, it's all books and it's all stuff that may be in a print or out of print, but uh, we sort of over, over our time kind of collect all these resources that are not really, well, they're I not found Google, right? In libraries, you sometimes can't take certain books out. You have to stay in a research department. And I didn't find that very helpful to me mm -hmm. because I do like engaging deeply in my research. It's mm -hmm. one of the things I'm known for. So I started to buy books whenever I was researching certain periods as gifts to myself on, you know, before, before opening night, before opening night. Yeah. And if they were ex costume exhibits or theater exhibits that I'd managed to go to, the book I showed you, Risking the Void with Cameron Porteous, yeah. I will buy that immediately because I'm, I'm just thirsty to find out about how other designers think. We don't often converse with each other or share the same space when we're working on a show, yeah. more so in Quebec as we were saying, which is part of their policy that you do get together communally mm -hmm. to workshop pieces. But here we tend to work a little bit more independently. So to be able to really, really get into the research of it, I just found some of these books to be absolutely exhilarating on, on how people design. There's one funny thin little book called 50 Designers, which is really about one page per designer per film. Right. And it just is, what they're answering is, how did you get to the concept or the design of what you're doing? Wow. Fascinating, because every single approach is totally different. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, I, f um, I feel like, and, and um, like this, um, the show is really focused on an audience of people who are building their um, resume, building their, like their training to, to work in theater. And um, how, like that process of developing your taste is such an individual process. I don't know that I took, like I didn't take courses on that at, at school. Uh, it's just something you get over time with your own kind of experiences. Um, so it makes sense that every time is different. But I also hungered for those kind of, what, like, what, do, you, what do you do mm -hmm. when you approach the design? Like how can I take, uh, can use your process as a jumping off point from, to develop my own? And um, how do you, I mean, we'll get to this, I guess in the second half when we talk about training and, and how, what's important for people to sort of, what experiences are important for people to have. But was there anything in your, um, in N NTS or uh, in the beginning of your career that you felt was really important to develop yeah. that taste? Yeah. There was one crazy woman at the NTS, Erica Hoffer, mm -hmm. who was actually a cutter. He used to throw shears at people as well. Oh, great. We had, we had instructors that threw uh, uh, circular saws, so I understand that. That's like a notorious thing at Ryerson. I won't, won't say who it is. But it must have been the era. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Throwing things was a thing. Way to get your Not attention. in our space to exist then. <laughs> um, she was a really nutty personality. But the one thing I learned from her is script analysis. And that's the, that's the process I use when I teach my own classes right now. Uh, and then I found it 
in a blueprint form in a couple of other books on design too. And I just found it really, really helpful to have these questions that had to be answered that would guide you through guide you through reading the script properly first before you even touched any research books. I got to meet Tanya Mazevich quite a few times because of Douglas Campbell. And the mantra that I have, which every one of my students knows is, does it serve? That was her big comment, does it serve? And it's the text. It's not the, it's not the designer or the director or the theater. It's the text. Does it serve the text? So why are you using that concept? Why are you using that time frame? Why are you exploring the costuming? in that way for character development does it serve yeah that's great um uh i know that uh in my experience as well and and again we've talked about this a couple times on the the show about being a supplicant to the like production and not you're not hired as necessarily as an auteur although that does happen i think from sometimes and people like robert for example when they're creating work out of their own mind or from source material they're really the the like they're the opinion or the the hub upon which everything kind of rotates but most of the time you're He's the linchpin yeah. but but in, in working with Robert and this is now my fourth production mm-hmm. he trusts the input of all of the designers that work for him he will trust you implicitly when you're handing out information so you better damn well be accurate in it because he that's what he uses he has an idea of where he wants to go and then he wants you to bring the specificity of costuming you the specificity of video you the sound whatever it is in coordinating all this and i was just floored by how seamless that all was with coriolanus that we just recently did in stratford with him it just fell into place and maybe that's because some of us have now worked with each other too over a period of 10 years and we're getting more familiar with each other but definitely with him. And then he starts weaving it all and shaping it all. And it's like clay. He starts molding it into what he wants to do with it. But he does count on you to bring him in the information that he can then contribute to the piece. Right. That's actually really great to hear because I had from the outside, you think of a Lepage production and you have a certain, um, you have an expectation of something that's original and uh, it's going to surprise you. Uh, and we tie that to um, his vision very easily. But the fact that he's relying, just like every other show that I've done, on the people that he surrounds himself with mm-hmm. to come up with the specifics and help him make choices and give him opportunities and give him give him several things he can choose from or or ideas, uh, it really makes me it makes me. Um, happy that he works in that way and it's not him just dictating like in a Robert O. Wilson kind of way of right. what yes. the show should be. Right? Sure. Yeah. I still remember the very first time I ever worked for him. It was a workshop for the Nightingale and it was for the Canadian Opera Company. Well, we started with the Canadian Opera Company. It was a co-pro with four different companies. And the first time we arrived, there was this huge table set out and we literally sat down at it, introduced ourselves, and then he started to talk about the show. Mm -hmm. It took about 15 minutes, and then he said, okay, let's get going. Let's jump in the deep end. And I thought, you got to be kidding. But he had filled the pool with water, and he was serious. (laughs) The doors opened to the workshop in La Caserne, and there was a swimming pool. So we literally physically had to find ways to help him achieve the production by being there. Um, Do you know his process in terms of, okay, 
what's fascinating there is that you do four hours in the morning. There's a four-hour break in the afternoon. That's usually for the performers. The technicians and the designers are expected to respond to the morning's workshop, and then you come back for four hours in the evening with additions, changes, whatever has happened that you are reinterpreting that evening, and then you work through it again. And you do this every day for two weeks. That's terrific. Is that how he worked at Stratford as well this year? Or is that a well, different structure? No, it is yes and no, because um, two of the workshops were in Quebec City, and then we came to Stratford. And yes, they did let us do it that way, but they also did it the Stratford way, which is go on to the stage immediately, because that show in particular was very video technology heavy. The sliding screens, everything had to be calibrated and timed, so we ended up working on the stage most of the time. Okay, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves because we're talking mm. about Corleonis in the I think in the second half. Mm-hmm. But let's go back to when after you left NTS, uh, the uh, when you finished with that, your first uh, kind of exposure in Montreal. You stayed in Montreal mm-hmm. and you worked at the City Bromfen. Yep. Were you uh, did you come out as a designer? Like you were, you had sort of left, uh, you know, your wardrobe work behind you. Now you were actually. I took on design work at the yeah. City Bromfen Center. Yes. Right. And how was that experience? Now I understand you were doing some of it during. And yes, which is something that you're not supposed to do. And we had the same rule at Ryerson. I took off for a week and worked on a phantom in the kitchen. And we're like, don't tell anybody. I'll be, I'll be back in a week. Well, semantically, um, I wasn't breaking any yeah. rules because I took the job on during the Christmas holidays. Oh, right. But they considered that to be part of their school term. So I still got reprimanded anyway. So you ended up in the city, Bronfen. And what did you do there? What was your first, what was your show you were working on at uh, there? Do you remember what it was? Oh, Lord. Um... Well, Pear Brask, who was the artistic director there, was phenomenal because he kept inviting Stratford actors in the winter who were not working at Stratford. So we did the betrayal with with um, Richard Manette and um, Alan Scarf and Barbara Mesta, his wife. So they were there. We also did had a gabbler with Neil Monroe. So he was doing he was doing classics and he was inviting some pretty heavy duty actors there. We did the uh, collected works of Billy the Kid. How was uh, how was working? Um, I mean, it seems like a natural transition. Like it wasn't uh, uh, it wasn't difficult for you or challenging to sort of take on the, the design role after you left there. It was a natural transition. Was that it was because I did the research. I could do some of the drawing. I had some of that beaten into me by Francois, <laughs> and then I knew how to sew. So I had people that could work for me that were also cutting and sewing. So. Because there you had to be both the head of the department and the designer. Oh. It was a smaller theater right. at that time. So I did both. So I knew what was expected. Yeah. So it just kind of naturally collected all of the skills that I had accumulated up until that point. Mm-hmm. That's an incredible roster of people to be working with right out of theater school, though. It's just incredible. Like Neil Monroe, big fan of his. Oh, like, yeah. And Richard Manette. Like, it, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, did you feel... I don't know, intimidated at all, but you'd already worked sure. at Stratford, so... Sure, I did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's still people of great reputation. Uh, you don't know whether they're going to be easy to work with, have egos. I mean, I'm putting clothes on their bodies, so that's the area where actors respond, I think, the most emotionally, mm-hmm. because it is a part of their living skin. Um, yes, the set is important as well, um, and more so lights and sound in that world, too, mm-hmm. But the costuming is something that seems to be quite intimately and personally connected to them, how they see the character, how they want to wear the clothes, how comfortable the clothes are, all of that. 
So yes, I was intimidated. You bet. Fear is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. It still it steals you for what's next. Absolutely. Um, Okay, great. And then after that, uh, where did you go next? What was your? Did you stay in Montreal for quite some time? Or I stayed there until 1984, and then I realized I needed to go. The city Brompton closed, and there was very little English theater, and I hadn't broken into the French theater, although I could speak the language. I hadn't. They had their own world there, so I didn't quite make it into French-Canadian theater. Was was part of that because the program at NTS was two separate streams? Is that why? Like you don't have access to Well, that? in design they said it wasn't, um, but our classes were usually done in French at that point, not English. Okay. okay. I'm sure it's different now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and sorry, um, you stayed there till 84 and then... Uh... Then I looked for work in Toronto because right. I figured another big city would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. So I got a job at the National Ballet in the wardrobe department because my lovely friend Pat Scott was the head of the wardrobe at that point. She'd gone from Stratford to Toronto. So I got that job and then that got me into design work for other smaller companies. I also worked as a sewer for Canadian Stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember Patrick Clark doing the most beautiful work mm-hmm. there. It just, again, uh, a lot of interesting opportunities. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, that show stands out for me because Shauna McKenna was in it. Mm -hmm. And she was like in her prime at that point. So you could just see these amazingly talented people, even in their own departments and capacities, doing great work. And I think for, for me, my whole life is about being a sponge. I am really, really into learning. I think we are constantly, constantly needing to educate ourselves, yeah. to employ what we have and use it elsewhere, pass it on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. And what were the other, do you remember the, uh, the small companies you were working with in Toronto? At that time, this is in the 80s. I was trying to remember. 80s, right? Iris Turcott, who became a dramaturge oh, yeah. in Toronto, yeah. had her own theater company at that point, And she did the Velveteen Rabbit. That was my last show oh, wow. before I left. And I was, for some reason, they decided that all of the toys had to be costume departments. So I was doing life-size jack-in-the-boxes and a wooden horse that the props department cut the shape of that I clothed. That's crazy. (laughs) Lunatic. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, cute little uh, bunny costume. And the actress was willing to actually hobble in it because I gave her a low crotch. (laughs) And that was where I left. (laughs) Then I came to Vancouver because I was having breakfast with one of my roommates in Toronto at the time, and in the back of her equity newsletter was this job opportunity for teaching at the University of British Columbia. And I thought, okay, I'm doing three jobs just to survive. It was a really expensive city. I had gone from $100 a month for an apartment in Montreal to 500 And that was a big jump for me at that time. It probably sounds ludicrous right now, but... It was a big deal, and so I thought, I, I can't keep working three jobs and maybe even more just to be able to, you know, mm-hmm. take care of myself. So this job offer came up, and I thought, I can teach. I was a teaching assistant for five years. I can probably teach. I can research, so maybe I can do some more research and drama. And it was for teaching undergraduate and graduate students in theater. Mm-hmm. So I applied for the job, and Brian Jackson was on his way out mm-hmm. and happy to be doing so, and I ended up being on my way in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you ended up in Vancouver. That's great. Like, like that's a pretty spectacular, like that journey is really incredible. What, um, when you came to UBC, were you were able to, uh, work as well here, uh, like work at like freelance as a designer as well in town. Yeah. I always thought that was a requirement because I think mm. teachers need to keep themselves fresh and 
fluent. So for me, I was always interested in designing. Um, there was a company called Evergreen, too, that used to do George Bernard Shaw. And I ended up working for them. I was their resident designer. So again, you're just accumulating all this fantastic experience. We did Congrey's Love for Love, the musical, which was a huge hit here. So I learned about another period. So I was always working outside. And then by 1990, uh, a few of us got together, and Christopher Gaze was one of the instigating people, as was Full House Theatre. Alan Brody talked about that in his interview. And we got together, and we thought, maybe it's time for Vancouver to have a Shakespeare company. And Christopher, in particular, was really, really keen to do that. So we were all there as co-op members, which meant that the first year, I think it was a whopping $350 each that we got. Mm-hmm. We did Midsummer's Night Dream. Second year, we repeated Midsummer's Night Dream, and we did, I think, As You Like It, and we got a whopping $750, mm-hmm. and the third year, we went equity, right. and then we started talking about salaries, and then we started getting people on board who weren't just volunteering time, but were being paid for it, and now it's 30 years later, mm-hmm. and I'm still with the company. Yeah. Christopher and I are the only two people who have been there every year. <laughs> uh, it is kind of incredible that a design... Um, it's unusual, I think, for at least especially back then, too, I think for designers to be involved in founding a lot of this work. A lot of people were working, you know, you're working six or seven contracts over the year and you're 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 busy. Like starting a company is not something a lot of people consider to be um, they have the time for. So it's kind of uh, it's interesting to me that that uh, you were there on the ground floor. It was a new experience, Shakespeare, for me. Yeah. I mean, Bart has shaped my view of how I read Shakespeare and understand it. I've done seven Midsummer Night's Dreams. Uh, I've done three and four versions of many, many shows when I did Coriolanus. Mm -hmm. That was my 90th Strat Shakespearean production. 90. That's incredible. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's crazy. I've done. I think my, my the the total number of designs I did before I left in two thousand and four was like one hundred and forty or something. So the fact that you've done ninety Shakespeare's is but, kind but of incredible. We were, by the time we really hit our stride there, we were doing two and then three and now four oh. shows a year. And at the beginning, I was designing all of them, mm-hmm. and I was the head of wardrobe right. again because we still weren't quite big enough for that. So. It was easy to get that kind of experience. And was I intimidated then? No, but you didn't have time. But Christopher was a good friend of Douglas Campbell's, and he brought him in. So it was so amazing to work with one of the founders of the Shakespeare Festival and to learn so, of the Stratford Festival, to learn so much from Douglas about how Shakespeare was done. And then he would start bringing in other directors from from Stratford as well. So I got to work with Miles Potter maybe half a dozen times. I adore him. I love the way he works and thinks. He taught me a lot. The way I designed changed a lot with Miles. Douglas I will always love because he introduced me to it in a very, very rich way. Miles I will always respect and appreciate because he opened my eyes intellectually to what to do. R.H. Thompson came and worked for us and there's a man with a real heart and a brain scott wentworth came in and oh my god his drive was phenomenal and frightening so i got to work with all the people that i had either heard about or met way back long ago that's uh that's a great story too um now you uh how did you just back when you got hired uh, at UBC, were you developing a new, were you picking up something that was already existing or were you developing a new approach to the courses you were teaching or did they give you that opportunity? Or? Not really. I think yeah. I inherited a program that they wanted to refine and change a little bit more. So 
It was already in place when I was there. I felt comfortable enough with it in terms of what they wanted. And I was still allowed to teach the way I was approaching the textual analysis, Mm -hmm. design, interpretation, life drawing, all of those other things. That I pulled in from my NTS background. So that I added on to what was going on there. Excellent. Um, now, I'm not sure where to go next. I think, um, when did you start working with Robert Lepage? Robert saw a production of As You Like It at Bard on the Beach. Um, I worked with a director that I'm hugely fond of that I've done a lot of musical theater with, Robert McQueen, oh, okay. who now runs musical stage theater as well in Toronto. And we had done a version of As You Like It, and he said he wanted to do it classically. And I said... I'm so bored of doing Elizabethan theater. Robert, can we do something else? He said, no, no, I wanted Elizabethan. And I went, okay, okay. Can I do it with black leather or something? He said, oh, that sounds interesting. And I said, okay, let's do Duke Frederick's Court in like black leather costumes. So we did. And Robert saw that show. And shortly after it, he commented to Christopher Gaze that he had really, really loved the costumes. And luckily, my husband was also there. He's the production stage manager for Bard on the Beach. And Stephen overheard this conversation, too. And he phoned me in Ontario where I was visiting my family. And he said, you'll never guess who liked your work. I don't know. I don't know who. You'll never guess. I I don't know. You've got a lot of files on him. who are you talking about? And he said, Robert Lepage. I said, that's not very funny. That is not very nice. And he said, Robert Lepage saw the show and loved it. And I thought, oh, my God. I had 20 years of filing information on that man. I had loved his work from so far back and, and just thought he was amazing. And for him to have said that about my work just thrilled me. So I, I thought, well, how could I say thank you? So I went online, and sure enough, Ex Machina is there. There's a little line at the bottom of their website, and it says, if you want to reach him, write to this address. And I thought, oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I believe you. So I just wrote a quick little email that said, I understand that you liked my black leather Elizabethan costume, Robert, and I really enjoyed doing something somewhat different from the usual Elizabethan you know, track. So I just wanted to say thank you. Two weeks later, I get an email. Would you care to send us a portfolio? Robert wants to look at your work. And this is what I was telling you before. Our portfolios are never kept up, right? So I'm scrambling to create a portfolio that's decent that I can send off. And I finally send it off. Then two weeks later, I get another email and it says, Robert would like to meet you. I thought, oh, my God. And I realized, too, at this point that he is not accessible. He's always out traveling. I mean, now that I know him better, he is always out traveling. His personal assistants will will deal with his correspondence as much as they can. But they will. Mm -hmm. So I said, sure. What's looking likely? And they mentioned Ottawa. And it turned out, coincidentally, Mm -hmm. that I was doing one of the electric company shows, Brilliant, in the English studio of the National Arts Centre. And he was doing the Anderson Project in the French studio next door. Mm -hmm. And so... His secretary and I agreed that this would be a good time to meet. We finally figured out a day, and I met him in the that big hotel, Laurier, is it? Oh, yeah, yeah, the Chateau Laurier. Chateau yeah, Laurier. Yeah, yeah. I met him there for breakfast, for a three-hour breakfast meeting. Wow. And he stepped out of the elevator, and I thought, what a brave man. I mean, I know what he looks like, but he has no clue what I look like, except that I've got this ridiculous grin on my face, right, yeah. so he knows it must be me. <laughs> And we had a fantastic three-hour conversation over breakfast. And he said, can I see you in, in Vancouver when I'm there? So I said, sure. And when he brought the show over, sure enough, they said, come and meet with them. We had another breakfast. 
And he was telling me about this wonderful, weird opera, The Nightingale, that he was interested in. And it would involve, you know, water in a pit and all this other stuff. And I said, that sounds fascinating. Sounds brilliant. And we're just talking about that. And nothing happens. And six months later, he, he's going to be in another city. And he said, you want to meet up with me? And I said, sure. And, and then when we got together, he said, so have you done any research on the show we're doing? I said, what show would that be? And he said, that would be The Nightingale. And I'm turning like, you know, green. <laughs> and I thought, that was, that was a serious invitation that I never got. And he said, did my production manager not reach you? And I said, no. And he said, okay, I'll deal with it. And that was how he, he I think he hires a lot of people himself personally, from what I can understand. And from what I learned from his production manager later on was that he hires people deliberately and creates the teams that end up working on each show. He has a reason for why he picks you. And I thought, why the hell would he have picked me? I just showed him an Elizabethan costume and he wants me to do Chinese costumes. Where's the logic in that? You know? That's a great story. Um, so I, I think that this is a good opportunity for us to talk about the differences in Anglo and French, mm-hmm. how they work. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't talked about this a lot on the podcast. So, uh, and I have never worked in French theater. So it's, I, I, it's, I'd like to understand what you think are the major differences and um, I don't know, your opinion on, on maybe why they do it differently, differently or... Um, even uh, which one you feel is better or more appropriate, or I'll let you take it. Okay. Perhaps they're different because the heritage of theater is different. Mm -hmm. Um, In English theater, we have inherited a system where the designers contribute what I call pie wedges. You each have a piece of the pie, and you kind of put that into the whole recipe. So... A director will have an idea or a concept or want to discuss the play, but they'll talk to each designer separately. Mm -hmm. And then eventually you do the show and tell. I mean, that is really the way it has been and I think can still be. Mm -hmm. And so you haven't always talked to other designers. Sometimes you'll you'll talk to two of them. Maybe costumes and set will talk together or set and lights will talk together or now it's lights and video will talk together. But I was not aware until very, very recently that an English theatre you worked together as a group and you were in the same space at the same time. It was always a separate contribution. Mm -hmm. And then during the show and tell, you learned so much about what everybody else was doing. When I worked in French Canadian theater with Robert, and I've seen it in a couple of the other smaller theaters that are there in Montreal right now and Quebec city, you work as a group. Like immediately when you come in, you are at the same table and you're hearing exactly the same thing that the director is talking about. And the thing that really intimidated me the first time I was there for the workshop was that you're all expected to contribute toward it, but not necessarily just in your own department, in in your own capacity. So if someone's talking about the set and you have an idea about it or you think how your, your department can be affected or integrated into it, he just wants you to talk about it. Like nothing is really considered negative or sacred or critical it's they're just comments that are being thrown out there and we're all going to discuss the possibilities of what we can create together Mm -hmm. and that for me was new and terribly frightening i was so used to shutting up in these meetings and just talking about costumes you know i had no right to talk about the set or anything else Mm -hmm. or the lights Mm -hmm. which can be a bit of a handicap at the end when you get surprises on stage Mm -hmm. 
But there, the surprises are different. They're more evolutionary. Mm. Does this work that we tried? Plus also, there's more experimentation. The workshops actually require that you test things out. So with Robert, you're actually, the actors are acting on the set that you fabricated. And you have costumes for them to wear. When we did Coriolanus, the Stratford actors were just shocked because they would talk about the play, they would read it, they would read a scene, they'd discuss it, they'd reread it with a new understanding. And in the meantime, the technicians were creating the set. Then they got onto the stage and onto the set and they repeated what they had done but with the advantage of having a physical environment. And I was asked to provide costumes, so I went off to Stratford. They shipped off everything I pulled from stock, and I would be backstage putting costumes on people. And that's the other thing. Designers are hands-on. Everybody is. So you're constantly involved in things. So I was in the back. There's no costume wardrobe head. The designer's out there telling each actor what they're going to be wearing, helping them go on stage with it. The sound person is at their computer working on the sound. Uh, the set people are there literally fabricating the set, moving it around as Robert wants it changed. Yes. So you are living in an environment that's going to not be a surprise for you later on, except that it is finessed and gorgeous by the time you're done. Right. Yeah. So uh, my <clears throat> my first response is that I had been in, like, uh, I, and Ellen Stitchbury and I talked about this too, um, where uh, he had certainly, I think, the understanding now and over the last 10 years, probably in, in English theater, is that this is the better way to work, that you're all together at the, the French beginning. Way. Yeah. The French Canadian. Yeah. And uh, certainly, um, I had been, even in the early 2000s, it had been moving towards more of a collaborative, like mm-hmm. I was spending more time in rehearsal than I ever had mm-hmm. as a designer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the extra step of producing it at the same time that you're thinking about it is not something that's very common. I know that some people have worked that way. Daniel Brooks, I think, worked that way uh, with the Augusta Company and Daniel McIver with Dada Camera and that whole, um, in the, the Poor Alex group, I know that they had done a lot of work like that um, in the late 80s, but it was also an anomaly. Like, no one else worked mm-hmm. that way in Toronto. It was always like everyone's working in their separate little places and we come together like you said i'm pretty sure that's european i know that rivera's yeah. been working with ariana mishkina recently in theatre de soleil and that's how she works yeah. uh it's how peter brooks works yeah. you're inventing it together as a unit yeah. so i think it's richer that way yeah. it's a little bit less artificial mm-hmm. and i think it gets rid of a lot of the egos mm-hmm. because you're all contributing together as a collective yeah. and it helps you to see the concept better mm-hmm for lack of a better word. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wonder if it is a money issue. It, yes. That A lot of it is It is expensive to do it that way, for sure. Uh, also, it's a time issue. Robert, when we did the Nightingale, it took five years mm-hmm. of workshops. Wow. And after we performed it in Toronto, at the Canadian Opera Company, where it premiered, it then went to Europe, and it premiered in Europe, in Aix-en-Provence, mm-hmm. and Lyon, and it changed again. Mm. So he brings his design team with him, and you continue to evolve it with him. Yeah, that's funny, too. I remember being very frustrated as a, as a lighting designer because I had learned, 
you, you sort of get to opening night and go, good, it's done. And then you do a remount and you go, oh, well, the remount is just the same thing we did last year. Let's just do the remount. And then somebody would want to change something. And I would get kind yeah. of like, oh, why do you want to change it? Um, and not embracing this idea that this is a living thing and that we're changing it for a reason and you're in a different environment and different well, actors. And, and I'm laughing right now because I just got a, an email from Michael Levine. Mm-hmm. And I said, how's it going? Because I know that he's been doing some new work um, for this Dutch uh, Netherlands company and Simon McBurney. And that's all experimental and cooperative and collective as well. And uh, I said, how's it going? Do you have time for anything else? And he said, God, it must be the year of the remounts. Like they're doing about six remounts. And I wrote back and said, Aren't, isn't that great though? Like you finally get royalties. Like we're finally going to get paid, right? As opposed to Effie. And he said, yeah, but I keep looking at this stuff and thinking there's six more shows that I can't change because they won't let me. And I'm going to look at the same crap that I that I wasn't happy with at the very end. <laughs> hey there. Yeah, I know this interview is going really well, but before you skip ahead, just shuffle over to the show notes if you could and click on the link to the Patreon page for the title block. It does cost money to produce this time capsule of theater design history, and for a couple of bucks an episode, you can ensure that I can continue to put out great interviews with designers like Marta Gottler. Go to patreon.com slash the title blog podcast and donate now. Thank you for your help. So just to sort of finish up uh, the rest of your experiences here in Vancouver as, as a just as a personal history, um, you've also worked at Studio 58 a number of times and you teach there. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize that they had a um, production program there. I thought it was just a studio program for acting nope. and directing, but they do production they do. as well. They have production as well, and there's a design component to it. Uh, there's even a variety aspect to it where you can start off as a, a, an actor, acting student, and then you can decide to go into production, transition, or you're asked to, depending on your skills and your abilities. Sure. So yes, there, there is a small uh, design component in the production program there. That's great. Uh, and you're teaching costume, history, and uh, design theory and design theory. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. So I get to put Erica Hoffer's script analysis into practice. <laughs> I'm sure that's appreciated. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, anything there? Um, any productions there, uh, or any other productions in Vancouver that you um, that you want to talk about that we haven't spoken about? Yet? Well, I loved all the musicals I did at Studio 58 because it was with my now friend Robert McQueen. That's where I started. He saw one of my shows at Bart on the Beach. Mm-hmm. And he loved the comic clown aspect of it. And he said, do you want to do a musical for me? And I said, yes. <laughs> so it was She Loves Me right. at Studio 58. Yeah. And it was the beginning of their focusing on musicals. And they also focus on Shakespeare, mm-hmm. coincidentally. Yeah. So I started to design at least one show a year there, too, as part of the continuum of teaching. Mm-hmm. But whenever Robert was around and he, d- he did a musical, I would be his costume designer. So we had some amazing stuff happen there. Um, the Cradle Will Rock was one of my favorite experiences with him because we actually tried to turn it into sort of a lithograph that it had uh, a lot of the color bled out of it. Mm. And when one of the reviewers actually commented on that, it was so rewarding. Yeah. It's nice when they get it, eh? When you yes. sort of say, this is the thing we're trying to tell you mm-hmm. and you understood it. Mm-hmm. Which speaks to the kind of rarity of that, though, as well. We get inside of our own heads a lot and go, know. this is why we're doing it. But well, they won't notice that, but I'll notice it and I'll enjoy it. But it's nice when the audience gets it. Is it is lovely when it's recognized. That's lovely. Um, okay. Well, let's talk about a bit about your approach. And we talked about a bit of the script analysis um, that you do. Do you want to um, maybe 
talk in a bit more in detail about how you approach a script and how maybe you were trained, maybe how that's changed over time. Um, uh, and then we'll go from there to... Sure. I don't think it's changed mm-hmm. over time. Um, certainly not the way I approach it. But from what I understand from actors, it's a system that they also use. In fact, what I teach at Studio 58 is my system is something you can use for set design, lighting design, any of the design elements, and possibly also acting, because it's the same questions. The only thing is you do not research until you answer all the questions that come out of the script itself first. So don't go making up stuff. This is what is in there first, and that will tell you where to go and research. So they're the usual things of where are we, when are we, but it's intense. It's really, really detailed. So you have to find all the indirect allusions to it in the script as well, rather than just it's you know, July the 4th, the play called July the 4th, because you know it's July the 4th. Okay, well, there's banners that are mentioned, you know, like, you have to actually analyze it to a great depth. So those are the questions, what happened before the story started, what happened after the story started. Uh, Occasionally, if the script is small enough, like I've been doing Beckett lately again, Mm -hmm. rounding off my life, um, create a biography, or an autobiography for one of the characters. And how do you do that? You start to infer from all the things that are actually in the script. So it's an explorative exercise. I also use uh, collages Mm -hmm. for moods. Mm -hmm. I use collages for character study. Mm -hmm. And I use collages for period research. Mm -hmm. So they're intuitively starting to combine their interest in the script with the written information of the dissection. Listen to that. it was Pamela Howard that said we're, we're archaeologists and detectives, mm-hmm. and I adore Pamela Howard. She's just one amazing designer and director. You use those things, blend them in together, and then you start doing the actual research. Right. That's what supports you. And I always say, whatever you start with first, your answer's at the very beginning. When you get to that phase in your research or your development where you go, I don't know what to do with this anymore, I, for, I, I don't understand it, go back to what you wrote originally, and the answer will inevitably be there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I ask them to do is always to evaluate something after it's been produced, whether it's a paper project or a real production, and see how many of the ideas you had at the beginning were realized in the production. Mm-hmm. How successful was it? Uh, many times that the process is about a winnowing. You've got 26 ideas, but mm-hmm. only four of them are really important for mm-hmm. the, telling the story, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't always know. You see, that's the thing mm-hmm. about Robert. You can come up with these ideas, and then as you're developing them and things feel right and they're slotting into place, you only realize at the end how many of them were actually there strongly, how many were there subliminally. Mm-hmm. And you probably did jettison a few because they weren't as significant at the time. Um, And then how much do you share with the director during this process? Like at what point, I mean, obviously you're having conversations with the rest of the team and with the director about their vision, about how they're interpreting what what is written, um, if there's indeed a script at the beginning. And how much do you, of your research or um, uh, these collages and other other kind of uh, product of your Mm -hmm. exploration, do you share with the director and when do you share that with them? I'd like to share it a lot uh, and almost at the beginning. I I find that directors tend to want visual information Mm -hmm. earlier on than it used to be the case uh, with Robert uh, McQueen. We would talk about things for a long time, like have a four-hour meeting and discuss what we wanted to do with it and then come back and go, yes, but if we did this, then we could do this and have another four-hour meeting. And then eventually you'd show images of either uh, the actual costuming or period suggestions. I mean, it will vary. It will totally vary depending on what they think they want to do with it. But 
usually visuals will start opening up their eyes to what they can see from costuming. Um, it's taken me a while to realize that not all directors are visually, um, what is the word, capable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not everyone can read a sketch. Mm -hmm. So it helps to have pictures of actual human beings in costumes that you rip out of magazines or that you photocopy from legitimate sources, whatever, so they can see a person inside right. a piece of clothing and then they get it. Yeah. Or if you refer them to a movie, this is the thing I'm finding a lot now. Yeah. Like if you want to go, oh, it's a lot like Once Upon a Time. Mm. Oh, okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. So it's the quality of, you know, Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, people's is this especially with younger directors where they're or is this all, everybody who's using is changing their vocabulary? I think it's a changing vocabulary. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Uh, and I wonder if there's a training. Uh, although if it's happening with everybody, it's not training them because it's people who are very at varied uh, positions in their career. Um, but like, is there a way to sort of train somebody to think visually? As a director, like to, to have that kind of three-dimensional realization, or is yes. that just a... Yes, one of the exercises we do in our class is I will take both a photograph of an individual and I will take a costume design, mm -hmm. and they are required to create a narrative oh. around that person. Right. So yes, there's a way to, to teach someone. Yeah. So maybe the... I mean, the way that we're communicating visually as a society is changing with the different with, with the rise of YouTube and Instagram and like a changing relationship to image, I think. Um, so that, I imagine that's probably at the basis of this, of this change of vocabulary too, right? I find that when you have fittings with actors, you get a lot of information coming out of them that suggests that they want things another way, mm -hmm. and it takes a while to figure out why. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that is inspired by that information, whether it's a shape or a color or a look or a hairstyle, whatever. Mm -hmm. It seems to come out of that as well. It doesn't always come out of the historical research. So there's a weird dialogue going in there about, and I've tried to teach myself to be more patient. Mm -hmm. You're saying that because you want what expressed or what are you trying to tell me? So that I'm understanding that if it's, a certain ferocity they want, I can explain to them why in that period it would be done this way. Yes, it's the Elizabethan era, and so it looks a little bit effeminate. They all did. All of the men did because of the nature of the silhouettes. And the wealthier you were, the more effeminate you looked because of the accessories you wore. So if you want to be ferocious, this is the way you can say it in this era. Plus, you need to know that other people in the company are looking like this. Go back to the sketches in the rehearsal hall and check everybody else out. So your answers, I always feel the answers need to come historically from a source. Mm -hmm. You can manipulate them all you want, but I think there has to be some kind of core there that is indisputable. Okay. It's that old adage about you can't, you have to break the rules, but you can't, you don't, you can, you have to know the rules first before you can break them. Right. Yeah. Um, that's interesting too. It also strikes me, and I think I've had this conversation, like in speaking with people who do costume design exclusively, uh, or as their core kind of practice. Um, I think invariably, um, costume designers have the most, um, the, the closest relationship to period. Um, cause set design is accomplishing different things. I mean, obviously, you know, architecture is part of that, but you can do a lot. You can have a lot of forgiveness from an audience to sort of winnow away a lot of the detail um, and still serve the play. But I like when I talk to costume designers, 
um, period is, and and even to the point where, no, it's not not nineteen fifty eight. It's nineteen fifty two. Like even ten years, especially in like the silhouettes during the nineteenth century, that they changed so mm-hmm. um, so greatly. Uh, and you, can see, early... you can see that after the war. I mean, that mm-hmm. was the whole point to Dior in forty seven, the right. so called new look. Right. It, it was scoffed at at the beginning. It was a luxurious indulgence mm-hmm. for people who had money and you know too much time on their hands, that kind of thing. So if you put someone in that costume and someone else in a costume that still belongs to the rationing era mm-hmm. of the 30s mm-hmm. you're saying something really really obviously intense about how different their relationships are yeah. when we were doing Coriolanus what I found interesting because I had a, a I had an assistant at Stratford and we were looking for modern clothes and so she, she was amazing by the way mm-hmm. she was an amazing assistant she started to just look for modern clothes and I said no 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 Italian modern. He uh, wants it to be as if we were actually in Italy. We're still keeping some of those references. What's the difference? Well, look at Dolce and Gabbana. Uh, look at Valentino. Look at Versace. The female shape screams out at you. There's no getting away from that. There's a real difference between male and female. So we have to get that established. And the texture is different. Italian fabrics are richer, they're more colorful. Uh, they're more subtle for men's clothing. Mm-hmm. You can feel it in your hands. I mean, you, yeah. it, it just has a different quality to it than the thinner wools of a man's suit in North America. Mm-hmm. So even though it was modern, it was still Italian. Mm-hmm. And even though it was 2018, it probably looked a little bit like the 1970s, oh. the Dolce Vita era, right? right? Because that's where the female silhouette was also mm-hmm. enhanced. Yeah. So there's a whole different way of dealing with am i getting off track here for you dealing with the modern like having to explain that yeah i wonder if um i i totally get that and as a designer i appreciate that level of detail uh and i also understand how the actor and the director would make choices that that would support or that are dependent upon those choices and that you guys are, are working intimately to make sure that it's reflecting the character's choices as well. My question uh, is about the audience, though, and about their level of sophistication and about their understanding of the silhouette and whether they pick it up. I mean, we just talked about it's great when the when somebody gets it. Um and for big concepts, I think that's probably more important, but um, or more satisfying, right? You got my overall concept, um, and when they get the subtle stuff, it's nice little treats. But you're not really expecting them to to necessarily pick up pick up those little things. My my question is whether or not it's worth being that detailed for yes. the audience. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. They can pull out what they need that they recognize. They may not recognize it all, but they'll recognize some of it. And some of it just sits under the surface, and they're not going to get it until the very end. And remember, for again, Coriolanus, we had stories happening where the tribunes who were gaining in power ended up monopolizing the power and becoming dominant in Act Two. So their clothes were more traditionally political, and then they became quite resonantly rich. It reversed for Menenius. Coriolanus' servant who was left behind with his family once Coriolanus left Rome. And he went from an amazingly well-shot Italian to a man in a tired old suit with a dark coat. And the three women at the end, when they were begging for their lives and for Rome's safety, 
were also in mourning clothes, basically, that were quite destroyed. That's what you understand, the emotional resonance. In that way, it's modern. That's all you need to say. It's modern and it has an Italian feeling. But you get the emotional quality of watching that change. I was also, again, as you say, it's rare. I was so pleased when a couple of the critics actually said they appreciated the narrative of the clothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. That's great. That's an awesome. That's such a such a terrific response. I and you're absolutely right. I totally uh, I feel like the audience even though they may not be able to go that's Italian da, 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 they will they emotional if it's done well, they'll get the emotional journey and that will be enough for them to even have a visceral maybe subconscious response. To the changes in the character. We had three women who were all elite women in that play. The mother, the, the, the wife, and the friend. Mm -hmm. So they're all wearing wealthy clothing and it's all modern. Mm -hmm. But they all have different personalities. Mm -hmm. the, the wife is sweet and humble and complacent mm -hmm. to a point. Mm -hmm. The mother is dominating and sensual and dramatic. And the friend is someone who gets information by sleeping with the ministers mm -hmm. of war and passes that information on. So you're going to have three different interpretations of high-end clothing. Mm -hmm. That you should also be able to translate. It could be the, the amount of jewelry. Mm -hmm. It could be the hairstyle. Mm -hmm. It could be the quality of the heels that they're wearing. But you should be able to indicate some of that in the way they look and, again, in the changes that they go through later on. Mm -hmm. That's great. Okay, so uh, let's just take it back to process. So you've uh, done the script analysis. Your research now... Um, what is your is does your research depend on the production and the period that you're researching or uh, do you have a sort of general approach that you, you know, do in a kind of stepwise fashion? How do you approach the research portion um, after you've finished the script analysis? If it's purely historical, you can start by researching that you can you can do occupations. I mean, that's a good way of again focusing yourself rather than just throwing a wide net uh, so if your director is willing to help you fabricate the character and their life and some directors are wonderful about literally going through the play character by character you can create the work that they do uh, their needs, whatever it is that you want to express and then you can start isolating that in your research It there's a lot out there so if you want to do turn of the century going into World War One, mm -hmm. you know, and you're getting a, an emancipated woman, mm -hmm. then you know right away she's not going to be wearing the typical mm -hmm. corseted structure of the women of that era. It's going to be a lot looser. She may even be, God forbid, wearing trousers. Right. You know, it, it depends on how far you want to push that idea. So you can start researching that way. Again, everything is coming from what the script says and then what you and the director are saying about the characters within the script. And, you know, it just kind of is like ripples mm -hmm. in the water when you throw that stone. And then that's what helps you to determine where you're going to do your actual research. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes there are realistic characters. When we did Othello at Bard on the Beach, we set it in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And recently there's been this phenomenon where artists are colorizing old pictures. Mm -hmm. And what we noticed was that when you looked at the picture of these Civil War soldiers in black and white, it was poignant and sentimental and it looked like a piece of history. And as soon as you put color on it, you were looking at individual human beings mm -hmm. and you felt like you knew a little bit about their history by looking at their faces. So when we did that play, I actually suggested to the director that we look for characters historically that matched mm -hmm. 
the physique of the actor that we were using and used that to generate some of the, the quality in the play. That's I love stuff, details like that. It's pretty terrific. Um, when um, when you start to express uh, silhouettes and start doing renderings, uh, first of all, do you uh, uh, do you still hand draw and and paint uh, uh, renderings? Everything. Okay. Um, some people are moving towards electronic mm-hmm. um, renderings, but I guess it's just a different technique. But you end up with the same. I have not mastered it. My husband and I had a little competition one time, and he was going to do it on computer, and I was going to do it by hand, and I was like done in half an hour. Right. So I, I don't find computer generated work faster. I do, however, admire uh, those who can do it, and in fact, I do remember um, Deborah Hansen's. Uh, computer-generalized works for Man of La Mancha for Stratford, and I thought they were absolutely beautiful, and I had no clue how she did them. And I tried to work on it, which is when we had our big competition on how fast it takes to draw something. Um, And I will give, you know, kudos to anyone who can use a computer program for costume design. Mm. I personally can't. And I, frankly, I like the connection of my Mm. pen and my hand to my head. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. And I I take it, like, I, I... I'm not again as a lighting designer. I'm a tracer. <laughs> I don't. I don't like do renderings or anything. But um, I guess no matter what the tools are, you have to be able to express fluently what's in your head, and regardless if it's a computer or by hand. I also have a process which I try to use to individualize every production, which I find that in Shakespeare, mm-hmm. after you've done the show ten times, yeah. you do want to create a freshness for your interpretation of the show when i do my illustrations they are not a standard figure they're also they're always done in a style and in a medium that i think is evocative of the concept or the nature of the piece susan benson does that extraordinarily well i am an amateur but that is what i try to achieve i try to individualize that particular production for that particular director and that particular concept so when we did the punk or not punk the um, steampunk version of comedy of errors at bard recently mm-hmm. i did it all in brown inks mm-hmm. with a very very choppy ink line that i, I basically just use as the ink in the stopper and and i just oh. sketched on top with that and let it go raw yeah. and it gave that hard edgy weird quality and decay mm-hmm. to the actual show so mm-hmm. that's just one obvious example of what i can do with each piece yeah. And uh, and ultimately, the renderings are really just to communicate a silhouette and mm. a color palette, and the rest of the work is about buying and cutting and working with your um, builders. Yeah, I, I hope the character comes through in each sketch. I think that's useful for the actors mm-hmm. to have and the director to see the overall picture. Mm-hmm. But you're right, it is really just a blueprint, and I know Pamela Howard is quite often put her stuff out so people can touch it and make it dirty and has stuck her coffee cups on top of it saying, it's a blueprint, what's the problem? So uh, when you take it to the cutters, yes, that's all it is. I mean, you'll get, can you draw the back for me too in pencil? Here, here's a pencil, piece of paper, can you do the back for me? Um, It's just an assist and an aid. You'll still get questions about how you want it interpreted. Desmond Healy does the most abstract sketches and yet he has the most concrete drawings because he knows how to talk to his cutters and his sewers. Um, that's great. Again, a mystery to me as a lighting designer, uh, which is, and I totally get your process now, which is excellent. Um, now, in the um, uh, in your earlier career uh, or even mid career, you were doing a lot of design plus heading wardrobe, 
and were involved very kind of intimately in the in the build as well. Um, how do you feel like when you work in places like uh, Stratford or um, um, with larger shops that are kind of where you're not in charge of that? Mm-hmm. How do you how does your relationship change and how do you uh, obviously you're good at you know um, representing your ideas to people, but how does your relationship change to the clothing and how do you? But you know. Stravert was an interesting experience for me because I had been working with almost the same people at Bard on the Beach in the costume shop for its entire time. And we had a language that we could speak and they understood what I wanted when they would look at something and they'd go, real seams or not? Mm-hmm. Um, we could, we knew how to interpret the sketch together. When I got to Stratford, I hadn't worked with anybody but one cutter and that was so long ago. Mm-hmm that she was basically new to me, and I had to learn a new language. I couldn't use the language I had before to talk to them because they sometimes didn't know what I was asking for. Mm -hmm. It was a really interesting experience to be in, and it was great. It was a great test of my communication skills Mm -hmm. because I had to rethink what I wanted to explain. So that's that's really dicey. Um, I'd still prefer to see things semi-draped on mannequins so that we can share the information and whether or not that's where we want to go with it uh, rather than just have them draft pattern off of what I'm talking about. Mm But it's the communication skills required in getting a cutter to understand what you want. I also am collaborative in that sense that uh, like Pat Smith, who I mentioned before a long time ago, a crazy British eccentric cutter, Mm -hmm. Linda Chow, crazy Chinese cutter, um, Bard on the Beach, I used to call them the United Nations because we also had a lot of different nationalities there. They would look at something and go, okay, well, I can also do it this way. So how do you feel about that? Mm. And you could negotiate something or they would offer you something that you hadn't expected was even physically possible. Mm. And that's kind of exciting. Mm. And I came into Stratford expecting that. And what happened was, what do you want? Yeah, that's interesting. It's it's something that is so... um, I mean, I guess scenic art is maybe equivalent, although a lot of the scenic, like the art, rent, like the uh, painting renderings and the paint samples that are done are quite specific and quite like uh, um, process, like uh, like uh, we're going to do wood grain. Mm-hmm. Okay, everyone knows what uh, what kind of wood grain, what's it, how many layers of paint are we doing? And it's sort of like, oh, this is the process. And I guess... Um, there might not be as much. I think you still have to be interpretive there. When yeah. you're taking something from a very tiny scale and putting it to a big one, right. what type of rendering do you want? What is it impressionistic? Is it abstract? What happens when you blow it up? Yeah. So how do you interpret that? There's different ways of getting the lines for the designer as well there. Right. Yeah. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Um, fantastic. Now, uh, when you're buying fabric, mm. first of all, you go on buying trips with the buyer from, like let's say if it's a large like, for example, Stratford, they mm-hmm. have buyers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess on the smaller companies or the even Bart on the Beach, you're probably uh, doing a lot of the buying yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about what happened at Stratford with the video uh, mm-hmm. and how, um, first of all, I had not heard of this technique before. Just bring me through, first of all, what the problem is and how okay. they solved it. Okay. Well, this is for Coriolanus in particular because we were using video projections. And... A lot of the projections were front projections. They weren't all from the back. And when you shoot an image onto a set, let's say, and you're putting bricks on it, the set will look like bricks. And if there's a person standing in front of it, the person will look like bricks, which you don't want to have happen. So 
apparently Robert's company had been using this technique for quite a while. I, I was told it was in its fifth generation incarnation, where if you got an infrared camera, you could use it to shop for fabrics and for clothes and determine whether or not that was a material that would not accept those projections. I still don't know why. I think it has something to do with the dye intensity, uh, but I'm not really sure what else is involved in that reflective luminescence. All I know is that there was one day, um, well, we went through the stock at Stratford, for one thing, with this cannon, which is what the big one looks like, and we shot it down a whole row of costumes. And every costume that would not accept the light had to, would, would react as white, white light. It would be white. You would see that. If it was light gray, that was acceptable. Once it got into middle gray or black, you could not use that on stage. You knew that then it was going to reflect your bricks. But there was no rule to it. There was no rhyme or reason. So at one point, we literally put like five pairs of um, black leather pants on a rack and we shot our small camera at it, and only one of them reflected white. So that was the only one we could use. I remember one of the costumes at Stratford that went pure white was this two-piece leopard skin suit for a woman, and I looked at that and said, there's no way on earth I'm going to put that on Lucy Peacock. (laughs) No. So it was really intriguing to have to go shopping with this little camera and explain to everyone why we couldn't buy a certain suit that looked absolutely perfect or a dress because it wasn't going to work on stage. And we had to, my show was in a sense designed by the need to have that infrared ability Mm -hmm. to retard projections. So I had to know which scenes were going to have front lighting, which we didn't discover until through several workshops. Mm -hmm. So we had to delay shopping until we knew for sure that was Mm -hmm. the situation. And then at that point we went out and got all the materials for it. That is quite the process. I, uh, I've never heard of that happening before, but it's a remarkable, uh, like so many people project from the front. I was just at Blythe Festival last three seasons and they're mm-hmm. only, you can, m- most of the shows you can only project from the front mm-hmm. and you're from under the balcony, right? So it's mm-hmm. a tr- straight shot. So you're trying to like carve out little, sh- um, frames in the, yep. in the mask to, to make sure that you're, you know, like going up top on the psych or whatever. But sometimes actors are not in the right place or they're in a place that you can't mask mm-hmm. or you're trying to, they're standing in front of the scenery or trying to light. So you can't do that. But this is the first time I've heard of somebody trying to solve it with this kind of this infrared thing. I it's had never incredible. heard of it before, but yeah. you always learn something when you work with that company. Yeah, it's true, right? Yeah. That's incredible. Um, and uh, anything else working at Stratford and Corianus that, uh, that uh, you have to change your process for? I know that there it's quite oh. protracted, right? It's a different it was. schedule. What I've, well, it was literally a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Because I had sewn at Stratford all that time, right. I was at least aware of the process that was there. I was involved in some of the techs. Right. So I could see the way Stratford normally works. And from what I could determine, it worked in a very similar fashion when I came back this last year. I'd been with Ex Machina for quite a few years, and I knew they did not work that way either. So all the workshops we had were in Quebec, and the actual onstage rehearsals were in Stratford. But it was it was really interesting negotiating fittings and having to explain to the Quebec team that you couldn't have fittings outside a certain time frame, that these actors were actually rehearsing for other plays and had to be at other fittings too. So we couldn't call them whenever we felt like it. We could only had you know certain opportunities and. And then you'd go back to Strat- the Stratford team and you go, yes, but they're going to be on stage rehearsing like 12 hours a day. So even though your actors can't be there, the technicians are there. So what can we do to accommodate the need for 
getting the costumes right? Can we still use the monster? Like, it was almost like as if you were speaking English and French at the same time. Sure. It was two totally different processes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it sounds like it worked out. Like the, mm-hmm. the, it like the end you know, product was. It was everyone was so amazingly supportive. Amazingly, I I went in there ready to be intimidated by Stratford because of its prestige and size and. Uh, I I love their production manager, Simon. He was so, so kind and helpful. And I never heard the word no from either team, ever, ever, ever. They would always ask why or what you wanted, and then they would try to make it happen. Right. Yeah. That's great. I mean, that's how it should be, right? One would hope so. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> awesome. Now, uh, where to move on to next? Um Oh, I want to talk about fittings mm-hmm. uh, because this is again, this is a very specific, um, and uh, you know, it's a delicate process yep. um, um, to go through. Any? Do you have any special approach to fittings? Does it depend on the actor? Does it depend on where you're working? Like, how do you? All of that. Uh, yeah. All of that. Um, when you already know the actor, you're at a huge advantage. And there's one actor I love at Bard on the Beach, Scott Bellis, who's now the head of equity here. Uh, and when he comes into a fitting, he's quiet at the beginning, and then he starts asking questions, and then he starts moving around in the costume, and he just gets really, really excited about it. And if there's something he doesn't understand or wants to question, he'll just say it directly. That kind of a actor is a dream, just a dream. He's willing to incorporate what he's seeing with what he understands already. So that part's, you know, just like a godsend. Um, tricky, they're tricky. Fittings, my mother used to say, you know, when you take your clothes off, the real humans left underneath. And there's a very sensitive little individual under there. There's a person who's been rehearsing and thinking one thing and maybe shows up at the fitting and goes, not what I expected. And then your query is, why not? What is it that's not working or fitting in? So that you can try to make it work for that individual. I have found over the years that period costumes are not usually a challenge for actors mm-hmm. to accept the costumes and fittings, mm-hmm. but modern shows are. And I think that's because we all have an opinion mm-hmm. on what the modern consists of. We have an opinion of what looks best on us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an opinion on what's out there in the fashion world that we want to wear or not wear. So I find there's a lot more pushback in modern shows than there is in period shows. Mm-hmm. But if you know the individual, of course, it's a great place to work from. You're going from, you know, 60 to 120 as opposed to zero to 60. Um, when I did Coriolanus, I was really nervous about the Stratford actors because some of them had been there a long time. Mm-hmm. They had huge reputations. They were lovely. Mm-hmm. They were lovely. Just, I think working with Robert makes everyone want to be part of the team. And so they were accepting what we were doing, occasionally asking why or or what else? Mm-hmm. But it was a really easy process. It was it was open. So I guess really what that comes down to is whose ego is at stake here. Like mm-hmm. when it, you know, and that's when I think a lot of value is lost. Yeah. There should be a dialogue in that fitting room, not a monologue. Yeah. From either. Yes. Point right. Yep. Um, how? What about um, the challenge of making somebody ugly? Oh God. <laughs> like the character is mm-hmm. like demands. That's a hard one because some people can't do it. Mm -hmm. Some actors have a really, really hard time with that. So you you have to be gentle. Uh, You have to find out how far they're willing to go. You have to find out if you can express it in another way. I usually come into fittings with three to six pieces Mm -hmm. that I've picked. So even if it's not the piece I like first Mm -hmm. in that order, 
as long as it's one of those six pieces, I can be happy. And if one of those six pieces makes that actor happy, so much the better. I had a very simple formula at Bard in that fitting two people had to smile, the actor and the designer. And then we're okay. Yeah. Uh, does that change when you're building the costume? I mean, I imagine... Um... Like you don't have those, you don't have several, you don't have six choices of the no, one thing you're building. No, right? no, and more is invested in it because there's a lot of labor in a built costume. So that's why it's good for actors to accept a designer's invitation to come up to the shop mm -hmm. and have a good look at the fabric or the sketch, mm -hmm. uh, first generation sketch, not mm -hmm. reproduction. Mm -hmm. Just talk to the designer about what's going on in that period if they don't know why they're wearing that certain thing. Mm -hmm. Just to have the more information you have, the more you can work within it as opposed to oppose it. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, sorry, I have a lot of curiosity about this. What about um, period costumes uh, like corseting is a classic mm. example that uh, may be extreme? Um, is, are there ways to change the silhouette so it looks extreme, but they can still move in it? Absolutely. And... You, you have to do that. There is no Shakespeare that's done sedately any longer. Yeah. There's always something crazy going on physically. And, I mean, right now we're doing Taming of the Shrew next year. You know yeah. that Petruchio and Kate are going to be bashing at each other. Yeah. So if you want to do something that's corseted, you have to give within it, literally give, like have aspects of it that are either elasticized mm -hmm. or that will yield with lacing or maybe even do the, un, you know, forgiven of getting a fabric with some stretch in it. Mm -hmm. You have to do things to allow the actors to move aggressively within that clothing silhouette absolutely uh and and i guess there must be tricks as well to like um panniers and underskirts and things like that that are may have been more i mean uh, in, in the case of bustles and things like that they were they were like metal it, it, structures or but they things, fold right? they also fold oh right. yeah they're lighter than they look that okay. that's the other thing because they look like such huge blocks of, yeah. of silhouette we think they're heavy and they're not what was heavier was the six to eight skirts that they used to wear underneath that for volume right. that you can hardly move in right. once you get a shape put one petticoat over it it's not that heavy right. so uh, when we did elizabeth rex mm -hmm. we had a huge um Panier that was actually to scale to one of the portraits mm -hmm. and when she sat down you could see mm -hmm. that there was nothing underneath it it all just collapsed on her right. and it was very easy and light for her to get up off the floor again right. so those aren't an issue but I think the answer there is offer something that's approximate in a rehearsal so that you can prove right. to the performer that this is doable right. yeah because their performance is based on how they move in the costume for and, sure yeah. so good costuming and I think more importantly to the right shoes mm -hmm. will allow that actor to be as comfortable as possible up to the point when they get to the fitting. So it's not when you get to the tech, you know, you, you've got to give them more leeway than that. Yeah. Um, so when you're building or when you're pulling from stock or everything, do you focus then on um, uh, the corseting, the, the, like the, the accoutrements that make the shape and the shoes. Those always. Are things that always get on stage. Always. First. You always start from underneath up. Yeah. If you don't get the silhouette right underneath, you're not going to get the shape right on top. So they also have to be used to how much they're having to maneuver in. Mm -hmm. uh, and the shoes is partly comfort. It's also how big are the planks on stage? Is there a mm -hmm. gap in the wood? Okay, the shoe heels has to be wider. Sorry, it's not period, but it has to be wider for the safety of the performer. So some of your answers are already determined by other departments' needs. Yeah, that's notorious for like fire escapes and uh, stair and um, spiral staircases yeah. that are all you have to have a little, 
like the holes in them can't be too too big. No, right? no. Yeah, you'll often get questions like that. We we laughed one time because we put Christopher Gaze in a Queen Queen Elizabeth the first dress. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't get through the door. <laughs> and then he found out that, yeah, they got through the door sideways. So that's what he had to do. <laughs> but it offered a comic moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You need to stop and yep. have to turn sideways. Bounce back. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, great. Well, let's, talk, let's just land then on training, um, just because this is your area of expertise as well. And a lot of the times in the show, we, we sort of... Um, I like to bring it around to what people should be focusing on and how programs should be structured and maybe larger systemic things, so maybe small details as well. Um, when you're um, when you're approaching, let's say you, you're going into design, um, and uh, what what things um, should students be focusing on? Uh, really, right from the beginning, like is it just technical stuff, or do they is it do you want them to start? doing all of it at once, like research and technical and drafting and everything else? Like, how do you think they should approach um, training and design? Well, I teach in a pattern that is small steps that lead you to an ultimate product. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it takes away the fear of designing. Mm -hmm. There's a beautiful book, uh, The Natural Way to Draw, Mm -hmm. which also, yeah, Nicolaides, he does that for figure drawing because we all think we can't draw. Mm -hmm. And he proves that if you just follow some of the technical exercises, by the end of it, you will know how to draw. Mm. Some of you will draw a little better than others, but you will all know how to draw. You will all know how to research Mm -hmm. to a greater or lesser extent. I think that's determined by how interested you are in the project or how well you understand it. Mm -hmm. But at least you've got the steps for it there. So uh, I don't know what your answer is there. (laughs) I think it's a degree of interest in the individual student. And I think that has to be overpowering. I remember at the National Theatre School, I worked seven days a week, mm-hmm. as did most of us, mm-hmm. because we just wanted to absorb as much as possible. Well, that's what it should be on a contract. You should be researching to the point where you know that script as well as the director does, which means you're going to be doing a lot of work mm-hmm. to be able to understand it. So students have to be willing to throw themselves into it fully, mm-hmm. keep their minds open, accept nothing and accept only at the end what works for them ultimately because that's what's going to define you as a designer but until then accept everything because you don't know which process is the right direction to take so take them all and find out which ones suit you or which ones actually work for that play be open enough that way Mm -hmm. um how about developing your own taste uh is there is it just exposure read 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 That's the one undervalued thing nowadays. Read, 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 read. Yeah, see some films too. Sure, whatever. Go to a lot of exhibits. Go to a lot of museums and galleries. Please travel to the other side of the country if you can. I get really discouraged when students don't know what's going on in theater in the other part of our country. You have to be aware of where you potentially want to be, hopefully, unless you truly just want to stay in your own area and your own province. You should have a bigger awareness of your place in the continuum of the business. Mm -hmm. And what the heck? Find out what's going on in Europe. See where the bigger ideas are coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, That reminds me that you had participated in a Prague uh, quadrennial exhibit of your work. Is that right? Or World Stage Design? World Stage Design. I'm I'm not an associate Associated Designer of Canada, oh, so I don't okay. qualify for the Prague Quadrennial. Uh, excuse me, I mm-hmm. didn't realize that was a, a thing. There, okay. Yep, there's, oh. a, there's a distinction. Okay, um, so World Stage Design, how was your experience? When was that as well? When did you? Uh, I sent work to Cardiff, and I, 
I loved it because the woman who created the catalogs of, mm-hmm. of all of the Prague Quadrennial pieces, all of the British Society of Designers mm-hmm. catalogs and of the world stage, um, I handed in the, the Nightingale, which I did with Robert Lepage. So right away she glommed onto that and what was going on. So she invited me to come there <laughs> and do a lecture. So I found the whole experience to be open. Like they were willing to embrace other people coming in, yeah. which I hadn't expected because you think, oh, we're Canada, whereas they're Europe. Yeah. But no, they, they really, really wanted to get the best of every candidate coming in. So um, that experience was great. I didn't actually get to go because I was working at BART. Oh, yep. But I enjoyed the experience of engaging with the people that were there and then producing um, entries on the website. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess with, um, I'm thinking about the, the filmed uh, live performances from the Met, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess with uh, HD and 4K now, you, like the design elements, there's no compromise anymore with filming, like with no. video, these events. Like I think that that's an opportunity to see other work as well. I hope that that, um, I don't know if there's a lot more opportunities well, it's, access to it's that, the right? way to see pieces that you have you never get to. Yeah. You, your schedule won't allow it. Your finances won't allow it. Whatever. I saw Robert's Faustus mm. that way, mm-hmm. and it was phenomenal to see it yeah. so large, but still to see the details. You asked about details yeah. before. Yeah. You could see all the details in it. Yeah. It was just one of the most exciting experiences. That they are also filming. They just filmed Coriolanus in HD. Oh, so for those folks who couldn't get to Stratford, hopefully you'll get to see some of that amazing filmic technology that was going on in the show. Um, that's definitely something I'm going to catch, uh, catch up with. Um, oh, that's awesome. Okay. So uh, I think that that's terrific. Now you've had a, an extraordinary career and as you said, lots of serendipity mm-hmm. Um and landed in a place that sounds really great for you and have lots of opportunities. Um, not everyone has that experience, but uh, but everyone hopes for that experience. Do you, um, given the current climate of theater, I mean, Vancouver seems like a pretty lively place these days uh, with a lot of great work coming out of it. Um, do you think it's it's a reasonable thing for someone to do these days, to theater? go in? Yeah. Like... It's a hard question, and, and I'm okay with an answer of no or maybe or... No, I think we have to keep this dinosaur alive. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think so. I think what, I'm encouraged by what Robert does. He, he doesn't think that theater is dead. He puts film into theater. Right. <laughs> or, or yeah. He adapts it to what's going on. Yeah. It, it may be holograms next, which I understand the National Theater is using right now. Mm-hmm. They did one with The Tempest recently. Oh, right. Ben Withshaw was an aerial that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think there are different techniques that we can bring to theater to make it lively. I think theater will always win over film because it has live human beings in it and we in the audience appreciate the uncertainty of what can happen. Mm-hmm. The huge response to the Beatles version of As You Like It that we did last year, mm-hmm. we managed to get the copyright to Beatles music. Phenomenal phenomenal it was beautifully integrated it wasn't just a jukebox review and the mm-hmm. play cut up huge response the fact that audiences were clapping away and dancing mm-hmm. and reacting to it willing to go on stage for the pre-wrestling scene that was there it was i mean if you want to talk about theater surviving and should we go into it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Awesome. and that was shakespeare yeah right. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. Kind of dragged out as the kind of dusty, you know, mm-hmm. thing that we do because I had to read the play in high school and, and uh, as an example of why we shouldn't do it. But you're absolutely right. Like there can, we can find. You make it relevant to who we are right now yeah. and it will always, always. What is it someone once said theater has been dying for how many centuries now? <laughs> that's very true. Well, that's excellent. I think we'll end it right there. Thank you so much for being on the It's been my pleasure, Michael. was costume designer Mara Gottler talking to me from her home in Vancouver, B.C. in December of 2018. Next time, the great Susan Benson will join me on the program. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com slash thetitleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like the show, support us on patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you frantically search for the right infrared camera to make your costumes reject front projection. You know you will not rest till you do this, you know. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on the Title Block. <laughs> <laughs>